Good morning, Pacific Hope Church. It is, again, great to be with you, great to be able to look at God's Word and do so together. Um, so as we've heard uh, a couple of times, we're going to start our journey through Ephesians today, and this is our official beginning, even though we've done some pre-work. So if you remember two weeks ago, we talked about Gospel Goodbyes, where we learned about Paul's last time meeting with the elders in Ephesus uh, before he would be sent to prison. And then last week, we learned from our brother Ray, who came back from his own private dispersion, to share with us the truth that this is Christ's church, and Christ will build it. And we know that that's true, whether it is Ephesus 2,000 years ago, or it is Pacific Hope today. So with that, we are going to make our way through Ephesians through the next weeks and months, and we're going to look at the incredible blessings that we have in Christ, and the marvelous power that he wields on behalf of his church, and how radically undeserving we are to be in Christ. And so we're going to dig into his call for us to work to maintain the unimaginable, unwarranted unity that we have in Christ. So our sermon today is going to focus on the first two verses, but we'll try to do a, an overview and kind of make our way through some of the scriptures so we get a sense of what is in there. So with that, we are going to begin with Ephesians 1. So if you are able, please stand with me and read Ephesians 1. We're going to go 1 through 14. Uh, again, the, the sermon is going to be on the first two verses, but I, I want you to get a sense of, of just how amazing uh, this is for us. There's a sense that Paul is straining to, to describe what is undescribable, and he's using these long, robust sentences to give us just a glimpse of what we have in Christ. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him... We have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of of his glory. You may be seated as we pray. 
Heavenly Father, we pray with Paul as we study this letter. Lord, according to the riches of your glory, would you grant that we would be strengthened with power through your spirit, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love we have in Christ. And may we indeed be imitators of our Heavenly Father. So in addition to some of the pre-work uh, that we've had over the previous weeks, our, our brother Peter decided that he was going to jump into a little bit of it, so some of it may be repetitive, but I hear repetition is good. We're going to start with verse 1, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now we know Paul as the prolific writer of the 13 epistles in the New Testament, but as we dig into this text, we are going to take a little time to remember some of his backstory. When we first see Paul in Scripture, he's supervising the assassination of Stephen, his martyrdom. He's, Stephen is one of the first of the deacons. He's full of grace and power. He's a proclaimer of the gospel, and he goes around doing great works of wonder. And because of those things, he finds himself on trial before the Sanhedrin, and ultimately he dies. He is stoned for that. And Saul approves of that stoning. And from there, he begins to aggressively persecute the entire church such that the people that were in Jerusalem are scattered. He goes from home to home, dragging them to prison so that the people at the church that was in Jerusalem begin to go into Judea and Samaria. And we know that Paul was a zealous Pharisee, and one of his accolades or one of his credentials was that he studied under Gamaliel. But unfortunately, he didn't pick up on all Gamaliel had to teach him, to teach. So before Stephen, Peter and John had been on trial before the Sanhedrin. And as that council sought to understand what they would do with Peter and John for preaching the gospel, Gamaliel gave us this advice, and it's in Acts 5, verses 38 through 39. He says, So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from those men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So the council saw wisdom in that, and they released Peter and John. But Saul ignored that, going further that even after he had martyred Stephen, he sought to extend his, his terror to places beyond Jerusalem. So he got authorization to go to Damascus where he would have the ability to find people, again, go house to house and bring them to what he considered justice. And as we know, though, that didn't go as expected. On his way to terrorize the church, he was stopped in his tracks. He was overpowered by a blinding light from heaven. So he lost his eyesight, but he gained the ability to understand that his instructor, Gamaliel, was right. He learned that he was opposing God. And in that instant, the pride that he had for his zealous uh, persecution of the church was replaced with humility, understanding that he was the foremost of all sinners. 
So it, it seems a little bit of an understatement to say that Saul was an unexpected apostle. And he kind of understood that. And uh, one way that we can understand it, I mean, there might be a couple of people in here who are familiar with NFL football. So every year in the NFL, they have this draft. And what it is is an opportunity for all of the teams to look at the the highly ranked college students, college athletes, and draft them to their teams. And the biggest thing is to be the number one draft. If you're the number one draft pick, you get a lot of promotion. Uh, you tend to get a little money. Um, but there's a big deal associated that, with being the number one draft pick. And, and the first few drafts are televised, and you see a lot of excitement about that. And they go through that until they get to the last draft pick, whom they call Mr. Irrelevant. Now, it seemed Paul might think that he is Mr. Irrelevant of the apostles. We saw in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was the least among the apostles. Um, he knew that he was untimely born. He didn't walk with Christ while Christ was on the earth. And he knew that he was under, unworthy because he was converted in the process of persecuting Christ's church. So even though he was unworthy, even though he was a hater, he was nonetheless, by God's grace, an apostle of Christ. Next, he says, by the will of God. So Paul highlights the fact that his apostleship is by God's will. It's God's doing. It's not of his own. And even though we know that an apostle is a unique call, all that are called to Christ, all that come to him, do so completely by sovereign will of the Father. And if we look at James 1.18, we see that spelled out. It said, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first, first fruits of his creatures. In John 1.12-13, we see, But to all who did, not, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we're going to see throughout Ephesians that this point is driven home time and time again, including Ephesians 1.5, where it says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And in Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, one of the beautiful things about Paul writing that this was according to God's will is he gives us perhaps the clearest example of God's sovereignty in salvation. He's not seeking God. He's seeking to destroy the church. He didn't convince himself by way of study or thought. And he didn't choose to believe, but rather he was forced to believe by an overwhelming power, the power of the Ascendant Savior. As a side note, we also see God's sovereignty and salvation in that he used an unconverted Saul to spread the gospel. Saul's persecution caused those who may have been comfortable to remain in Jerusalem may have been comfortable to hear God's word and, and live it out among their friends and, and relatives there. He dispersed them so that they had to leave Jerusalem. But when they did, they took the gospel with them. Now, most of us don't have 
as exciting a conversion story. Uh, maybe it happened in the car on the way to the Jiffy Loop. Maybe we were a child and we were at a youth group. Or maybe it was at, at the end of a long life that had been filled with rebellion. But the thing we all share in common, even with Paul, is that it's all by God's will. And he says that this is to the saints who are in Ephesus. And again, saints is, are those who are set apart. So the Jews who would have been reading this letter would, would remember that the, the Israel was set apart by God. It was a nation that was set apart, and they would have thought that this would apply solely to them. But by starting this letter with this statement, Paul is it's pointing to the mystery that he's going to dig into, the mystery that all who believe in Christ are saints. The Gentiles who were alienated, the Gentiles who were strangers to the covenant and had no hope, these are the ones that he brought to be in the body with the Jews who believed by the same blood that saved those Jews. And because of this, again, we see that in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, but all are in Christ, and all who believe in Christ are saints. And also when he speaks of saints that are faithful, sometimes we can kind of separate you know, the, into large groups. There can be the other guys and there can be us. There can be those who have no faith and there can be our group of faithful saints. But Paul is saying that all saints have an active and effective saving faith and that all saints will persevere to the end. So this isn't about creating levels or ranks, but the reminder that if we are in Christ, it is effective eternally. The recipients identified in the, this letter are those that are at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a chief city or a capital city of Asia. It was a large and culturally diverse city. It had people from all over. It had Jews and Greeks and Romans. Um, as a commercial link on the river Caister, it was a commercial hub, and a lot of the commerce had to do with worship of a Roman god, Diana. Now, Diana, who the Greeks, they also had their version, and she was called Artemis, had a temple there, and this temple was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and people would come from miles around to buy figurines and perhaps participate in illicit worship to this false god. Now, Paul's first visit was rather short. It was on his first journey, his first missionary journey. He was there for a couple of days, hopped back on a boat and left. But he came back on his second journey, and he stayed there for almost three years and ministered to the church and established the church there. And what our brother Sean read earlier today from Acts 19 is just a, an example of what God was doing through his ministry while he was there. And it's a picture for us of seeing God's great power at work even in a place like Ephesus, even in a place where uh, idolatry is common, a place where there are so many other ways to blaspheme against God, even in a place, again, like San Diego. But we see God's power at work drawing his own from wherever he chooses. Now, if you look at verse 2, we see the very common grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is a common greeting. In fact, it's a version of this is at the beginning of all of Paul's epistles. But more than just a common greeting, this is going to give us some really good insight into the book of Ephesians. 
it shows us the objective of this letter. This succinct salutation kind of gives us a thesis. We're going to prepare for a deep dive where Paul is going to talk about the immeasurable grace that we have in Christ and the incomparable peace that is there also and ultimately the fact that it is only in Christ. So the concept of grace and peace are important, and it's obvious in this book because it is repeated time and time and time again. God's grace is his unmerited favor. It's being approved or granted something that we don't deserve or that we haven't earned. It's God's unwarranted kindness. And the word grace appears 12 times in this book, and we're going to run through a few of those. So in chapter 1, verse 7, we see, In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm a very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measures of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Verse, chapter 4, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And importantly, chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And of peace, the other half of this greeting, we, we know that that means the cessation or the ending of hostility. It is reconciliation. It is wholeness. It is the general sense of well-being. And we... We understand that all of those definitions fit in this context because peace is the summation of all of God's goodness for us. And the term peace shows up eight times. If we look at chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, we see, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create for himself, in himself, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to who you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And if we look in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we see, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of calling of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so we see them separately, but we also see them together at the end of this book where we see somewhat of a rephrasing of this opening sentiment. And so in Ephesians 6, 
verses 23 through 24, we say, we see peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love, incorruptible. So this letter is meant to be a praise offering to God's glorious grace and the peace that we have by virtue of that grace. But again, it is important to realize that it is a reminder that we only have these things when we are in Christ. And 25 times, Paul uses either the term in Christ or in him. And each time, he drives home the point that it is the Father's love, it is his unfathomable power that work together to cause us to be united in Christ. If you look at chapter 1, verse 3, we see, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chapter 3, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And we see in him, starting in verse, or chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 1, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Chapter 2, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Since we are all saints, we are all in Christ, we are all part of one body, and it doesn't matter how far he brought us in, it doesn't matter our nationality, we are one with him, and therefore we are one with one another. And we are called to live out our day-to-day life with that understanding clearly in view. Now, generally, the way that this book is divided is it's in two sections. You have the first three chapters and the second three chapters. The first three chapters generally look at doctrine, and the second three are Christian duty. And James Boyce says it's a magnificent combination of what God has done through Christ and what we must do and be in consequence. So in the first three chapters, Paul reveals the mystery that was hidden for ages. So this is knowledge that prophets of old didn't know and that angels and powers and rulers in heaven didn't understand, but this insight was given to Paul. And the insight was, the mystery was that there's one way 
to Christ. There's one way to God, and that way is Christ. And the mystery was that God's immeasurable power, his unsearchable wisdom, his lavish, rich grace, his, his love that is beyond understanding, all those worked in concert to break down the dividing wall, not only between Jew and Gentile, but between God and man. And in so, he, he unveiled the truth. He revealed to us that, again, we are one with Christ, and we are members of his body and members of his household. And again, we have to be reminded that this membership into Christ's body, into his church, is only by God's grace. It's unmerited. Paul didn't deserve it. We know that. He, he went around and he persecuted Christ's church. He murdered people. Ephesus didn't deserve it. That was a city that was known for his idol worship, known for its illicit ways of disobeying and dishonoring God. The Gentiles didn't deserve it. They were away from the covenant of God's grace, and we, we don't deserve it because we have all fallen short. We've all sinned. But nonetheless, the grace that is demonstrated through the power of working in Christ on the cross and his resurrection means that we are, in fact, in union with him. And this is, again, something that is above what we can ask or think about. And this unity that we have means that before the foundation of the world, God determined that the power that would be demonstrated by raising Christ from the grave and causing him to sit high in the heavens above all rule and all power and all authority and all might, that same power would cause those who are his saints to be raised even though they are likewise dead and their trespasses and sin. And being predestined to be in Christ means that we will be given and we are given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we will remain until the end. So the first sections, we see this glorious doctrine of God's supremacy, of Christ's supremacy, and the unfathomable and the undeserved riches that we have in him. And the second section causes us to look at that and think about how we walk each day. So if we start at the beginning of that section, starting in Ephesians 4, looking at verses 1 through 6, we see, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner of worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now this, this portion of text acts as a translation or a transition. We're moving from illustrating the greatness of God and the, the magnitude of, of the wealth that he has to picturing what we do with that. By this, we understand that we look to the first three chapters and we see what inspires us and what facilitates us to walk, but then we see what that walk is supposed to look like. And we know that not only does it inspire us and cause us to live, but our lives should be intricately woven with what we see there. We should look at the first three sections and we should see God's majesty for what he has done and what he has done in Christ, but we should also see his passion for unity 
and understand that his call on our life is that we participate with him in maintaining that unity. And that, that, what that means is that we are to humbly, patiently, gently, humbly, patiently, and gently bear with one another. Now, if any of, us is, if any of you were with us uh, last year, we had a class on time management, and one of the, the crucial points was to understand that delegation is something that we do in order to maximize our ability to accomplish things, not just as an individual, but as, as a group of people. And I highly encourage that to you, even as you serve at the body of Christ, but this is not something we can delegate. I actually did sit with a group of brothers and try to figure out, okay, who can do the humble side and then who can do the gentle side and, and it doesn't work out that well. We are called, all of us, to do all of these. We are to put away falsehood and rather speak the truth in love. So in that, we, we use compassionate honesty. We don't use deception or manipulation to maintain unity. We don't covet we don't steal. Rather, we work with our hands. We look for ways that we can be generous. We are actively engaged at seeking to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. And in essence, we do what we can to build up Christ's church. Now, this building up of the church, this building up of the body, this maintaining the unity, it should impact our homes. It should be visible in our marriages and how we raise our kids. And it, is, it should affect the way that we work and how we manage other people. And it should have very personal and spiritual impacts as we put off the old man and put on the whole armor of God. And it has, should have universal impacts as we persevere in prayer for all the saints, whether or not they are here or abroad. Now, in closing, we're going to go again to that break between the two sections. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And again, this is after we have seen God's majesty and his greatness and before we start to see how he calls us to walk. And Ephesians 3, 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. As we go through this letter over the coming weeks and over the coming months, we're going to be more and more familiar with this extravagant abundance that we have, this wealth, again, that is in, we are incapable of understanding. And we're going to rejoice at the power that he has demonstrated by calling us and by empowering us to do the works that he prepared for us to do. But all of this is only for those who are in Christ. This is only for those whose sins have been forgiven, who have turned away from their self-righteousness and their notion that they can save themselves. If you are not in Christ, this is not for you. You are still at war with him. If you are still depending on your good works, you are still hopeless and separated from God's grace. You are cut off. And so we encourage you to turn from your rebellion Turn from your self-righteousness. Trust in the one, the only one, who can call us to be in unity with him. And from this chapter, from this book, we can see that God's grace, his power is sufficient to save the self-righteous. The idolater is not so far away from God that he can't be drawn near. 
We know that God can and has saved those who hated him, by the way, we all have, and those who persecuted his church. And so those who are lost, we ask that you repent and believe so that you too might know the unimaginable, unwarranted unity that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, that you would enlighten us, that we might know what is your hope and what are the riches of your glorious inheritance that is in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe. And may we stand firm against the schemes and the desires that would cause division within your body. And may we seek in your strength to love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.